welcome to Coach's Corner. I have another amazing guest for you today. Before I tell you about her, a couple things I want to share with you. I'm going to be doing some traveling this summer because it's so hot in Austin. So we are going to be in cooler places, which I'm really looking forward to. And I'm not going to be doing a lot of interviews for Coach's Corner. I'm going to be doing more solo episodes. So I want to know, what do you want me to talk about? What do you want to know about? What do you want to learn more about? What would you like me to teach or teach deeper on? If you can send me a DM, just follow me on Instagram and send me a DM, I would really appreciate it. And I'll start putting together shows for the summer. So be on a lookout for those in July, August, September-ish time. Also, I am so excited that we are getting closer to my women's retreat. Last night, I was co-facilitating the Breathwork for the Feminine event that Steph does here in Austin every month. And it's also live stream. So you can join for from anywhere in the world. And it was so powerful. I walked in halfway through the breathwork session because I stayed at home to put Athena to bed. So I got there about when they were about mm, probably 20 minutes in and oh, just walking into the room and seeing women doing the breath work and having such amazing, both emotional releases and spiritual experiences and healing and just seeing women be their own best healers through breath, through experiential work, moved me to tears. And in the sharing, so many people shared about how they had this amazing epiphany or this physical release or connected huge dots or saw their generational lineage, their ancestors heal because they were doing the healing. And what I said to the group, what I'm saying to you now is it's so important to remember we are our own best healer. Uh, there can be a tendency to run from healer to astrologist to psychic to plant medicine to wherever. And all those things are really great. I love working with clients. I love facilitating and learning how to really move ourselves through processes and tap into that healing power we have inside of us, tap into our intuition and tap into divinity, whatever that means for us is so empowering. And what I love, I love so many things about my women's retreat. What I love the most is that it's highly experiential, highly experiential. I do some teaching and I definitely do some coaching, but mostly I'm facilitating you through your own healing, through your own remembrance, through your own reclamation, through your own freedom process. And that's what's so beautiful about it. it is not the kind of retreat where you come and you take a lot of notes. You might journal because you're having aha, but it's really about having experiences that you can take with you and you can integrate into your own life. So you don't leave with that workshop high and then go back to life is normal. Now, of course, it's up to you to keep doing the practices, but the whole point of the retreat is to embody those practices so you can do them on your own. And I will say when you're in a group, of women. First, it creates a healing opportunity if you have any sister wound, any wounding with other women, uh, but also the collective energy of the group accelerates and amplifies where you can go. We can often be intimidated by groups, especially if you're an empath, but don't worry, I cover how to be an empath at my retreats right off the bat because I've had to be an empath at group events. So I really learned how to resource myself through that. So it's definitely something I help all the empaths with. And don't worry also if you're an introvert, because we make it really easy to feel safe and feel welcomed. And um, it really, we really make it safe for everyone. But my, my point before I got on that tangent is coming into a group of women 
and being able to ride the wave of the collective energy, I can't even put into words how magnificent it is and how powerful it is. So you've got some time, well, depending on when you're listening to this, but you've got some time to apply. You've got some time to take advantage of the early bird special. Go to christinehasler.com slash signature retreat, fill out the application, even if you're on the fence, set up a call with Jill. She'll answer any of your questions. She'll help you figure out travel and all that kind of stuff in terms of, you know, where do you fly in and where do you stay and all that, all the logistics. If you feel this desire to have a breakthrough, to connect more to that healer inside of you, to really embody, you know, you've talked and talked and talked about your issues. You listen to the show, you know, what your inner child wounding is, you can connect the dots as to why you're acting the way you are sometimes, but you just can't seem to change it. Come, come. I promise you will leave feeling so free. So again, christinehasser.com slash signature retreat. And this is a perfect lead into my guest today. Dr. Aviva Ram is a specialist in women's health and hormones. And one of the things we talk about in this episode is releasing stress and releasing emotional turmoil and trauma that we've been carrying around and how that manifests often into physical illnesses, especially in our hormones and reproductive system. So this retreat, it's, it's like a health retreat. You know, we aren't doing fasting and green juice smoothies and spa menus. But honestly, the emotional release work is often more needed and more powerful than any anything you can do at the physical level because sometimes the physical level doesn't heal and change until you change the emotional level. And that's something we dive deeper into when we talk about mothering and we talk about hormones and we talk about perimenopause and we talk about birth. There's so much we cover here. So let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Aviva. She is truly amazing. She is an MD and a midwife, as well as a board certified family physician who specializes in integrative gynecology, obstetrics and pediatrics with a focus on women's endocrinology. She is also a world-renowned herbalist and author of the textbook, Botanical Medicines for Women's Health, as well as eight other books. Her newest book is called Hormone Intelligence, which explores the impact of the world we live in on women's health and hormones and brings us new medicine for women that is at once holistic and natural while being grounded in the best science and medicine. As a practitioner, teacher, activist, and advocate of both environmental health and women's reproductive rights and health, she's been bridging the best of traditional medicine total health ecology, and good science for over three decades. You can learn more at her website, avivarome.com. And of course, check out her new book, Hormone Intelligence. Before we dive in, I want to talk to you about a really cool offer from my sponsor, Organifi. You've heard me talk about Organifi for years. You know you get 20% off all your orders, but here's something really, really cool. So they are doing for the summer a sunrise to sun kit set. And with it, you enjoy a 30 day free sample of pure. So the sunrise to sunset kit includes green juice. So I love green juice. You can reset your body every morning with 11 detoxifying superfoods, red juice, which is a caffeine free energy boost provided by nature's five best antioxidant rich berries and gold. Ooh, I love me some gold. Ease your body into calm, relaxed state with nine soothing superfoods and adaptogens like reishi mushroom, turmeric, and ginger. I love mixing this with a little almond milk, heating it up. It's my treat for the afternoon. So if you get this sunrise to sun kit set, which is such a great deal, you get a 30-day supply of Pure. So 
I also love Pure. It's a way to clear your mind with this brain-boosting blend. It's made with natural compounds that help repair, protect, and feed your brain cells while addressing the gut-brain access. It can help you support improve. It can help you support digestion, focus, and clarity. So this is a great deal. Go get this stuff. I don't know if any of you are traveling for the summer, but I know when I travel, I love to have things that help me continue to feel good that are easy to pack and Organifi individual packets are just great for that. So go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, enter promo code over it at checkout. The free pure 30 count travel packs offer is mentioned on the Sunrise to Sun Kit page and it automatically is added to your order after you buy the Sunrise to Sun Kit set. Plus you receive that 20% off your order. So again, Organifi.com, use promo code over it at checkout. All right, and now on to my conversation with Dr. Aviva Rome. Aviva, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Christine, thank you for having me. As I was saying to you before we started recording, this is just such a thrill for me because I have followed you for years and have always just had a deep resonance with your work because I think you do, not I think, I know you do an incredible blend of bridging Western medicine and you know, you're know you an MD with the holistic, more feminine, herbal, for lack of a better word, holistic, natural approach. And you- We do need a better word for that. <laughs> we do. <laughs> Holistic feels like so 1970s, but it says so much. And natural feels limiting because sometimes we use things that come from the earth and sometimes we use things that come from a pharmacy because we need, right? right? It's such a limiting, we need a word. We do. We do. I mean, to me, it 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 is healer. It is doctor. I wish, I wish that's what doctor really encompassed. But as yeah. of now, that's not, you know, our traditional medical system, but thank goodness for people like you who are trailblazers who are really bridging both worlds and where you have been, I mean, you've been particularly helpful for me in many different aspects, but especially when I was pregnant because I got pregnant naturally in my forties and I went to my first, well, I had a miscarriage and then I got pregnant again. And so I wanted to have an ultrasound at eight weeks just to, that's when I miscarried, just to see if, you know, I could get excited about this pregnancy. And I didn't want to do many ultrasounds, but for my own cortisol, I needed to to know. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I had a terrible experience with the doctor and she said, oh, you're advanced maternal age, which I don't think is any better than calling us geriatric. And, um, you know, you're going to need to induce at 36 weeks and you're going to need the COVID vaccine and your placentas, you know, going to be too old. And she just went through all these risks and there was no celebration of you're pregnant and there's a heartbeat. And I remember on the way home, I needed to reset my my brain and my mind. And I listened to one of your podcasts and I can't remember which one, but it was a very empowering one. And you were one of the people that I allowed in my ear during my pregnancy. So thank you for being a sense of support for me. And I chose Aww. to have a home birth and I did have a home birth and use midwives. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. At 39 That's weeks amazing. and four days. Yeah. And I have a beautiful little girl. And one of the things I'm really passionate about is, you know, just breaking a lot of the stereotypes and a lot of the limitations women feel are on them everything from yeah. fertility to hormones to home birth to to all of that. So I wanted to begin with that acknowledgement and just start with the question of, for me, one of the things that makes me passionate about things is also 
something that often makes me angry or frustrated. <laughs> it is something that I'm just like, mm-hmm, why mm-hmm, is it like this? Mm-hmm. And I experience you as a very passionate person. So I'm wondering, what are the things that have made you angry over your years of being a midwife and an MD and a mother and an entrepreneur and a woman in the world that have fueled your passion for what you do now? Oh, wow. I would say that the things that make me the most angry are social and environmental injustices. Mm -hmm. And there are so many that I I don't even know where to begin. But even you being told, I'm trying to imagine if Tom Brady was going to go out onto the field if his coach were to say to him, well, you are geriatric and you're, you know, well, you're advanced, you're advanced masculine age. age. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's just this whole, the whole end to end cultural approach to women, to pregnant women, but women in general, as if we're just sort of these lemons or Mm -hmm. these cars that are waiting to break down and we just couldn't survive without mechanics in white coats. So the disparities in birth outcomes in this country Mm. have fueled my passion since 1984 when I first started learning about them, uh, economic and uh, ethnic Mm -hmm. um, disparities that show up in our data. So just in New York City where I'm from, uh, a woman, a black woman is depending on where she births and what her circumstances are, three to 12 times more likely to die in childbirth Mm. than a white woman. Mm. And that is across all socioeconomic and educational backgrounds. Where I trained in midwifery initially in Atlanta, uh, and I trained in a collective of African-American midwives, that state still has either consistently the worst or next to worst maternal and infant mortality rates in the country and they have something like 190 towns, about 90 counties with no OB-GYN hospital wow. or any maternal health care provider. So those things really upset me. And then the um, basically the environmental practices and policies that are driven by uh, just rampant kind of commercialism and consumerism driven by corporations that really don't care about the planet Mm -hmm. really upsets me because I see the impact medically on everything from how climate change is going to continue to increase pregnant people and babies to the run of the mill exposures that we're all having that do lead to health problems. So those are some of the big things that really, really upset me. I think that um, mothers and how much mothers have to struggle in our culture to bear so much. And, you know, it's funny when I went to medical school, I already had four kids because I had been a home birth midwife for such a long time. And people would come up to me and say things like, you must have the best husband because you could clearly never have done this without him. And I think of like the single moms who Mm. do that. And yeah, he was helpful, but I I still had to do it. Or thinking that nobody would ever walk up to a man and say that. And so I I just look at the disparities in the emotional work that we have to do, the physical work, the economic work, and how it's 2023. Why are Mm -hmm. we still having to fight these battles and Mm -hmm. bear so much of a burden? Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize until I became a mother, the emotional and mental load it carries. And I consider myself a privileged person and I still struggle. And I often think about women who are far in far harder circumstances than I am. And I cry 
Because I'm just like, how, mm-hmm. how, how do they even? And, you know, so, th- I, so much of my show is inner child work, working with people on, on their childhood. And so few people that I've come across in my work have had really amazing childhoods. And yeah. it's just, and I don't think it's because <laughs> their parents were terrible people. It's just trauma gets passed down and people are so often in just pure survival mode that they, they just, they can't, they can't give a child a great childhood. They didn't have one themselves. So it's, yeah. we've got the generational trauma. We've got the systems that aren't working. We've got the inequality and disparity that's, that's happening. And sometimes when I allow and myself- And we have these crazy expectations right. of what a great childhood is right. too. Like when I was a kid, I grew up in a housing project in New York city. My mom sent us out to play. It wasn't benign neglect. It wasn't neglect. It was just you guys are capable. There are other kids outside. All the parents had half an eye on what was going mm-hmm. on. They could hear us, but it wasn't this helicoptering, this expectation that we be there at every second for every single thing, or yeah. we weren't good moms. Like what a good mom is now is so loaded oh, that so loaded. I think that it's exhausting to navigate that. And, you know, it's funny because I homeschooled my kids. So I was home with my kids until my youngest was in um, like a late elementary school age and the amount of guilt I had and even the amount of pushback that I got from some friends, from family for becoming a doctor when I thought really what I was doing was creating legacy for my kids. I was the mm-hmm. first one in my family, women in my family to complete college, to go and do that. So to me, it was like this really powerful thing. And my husband, when he was in graduate school many years before, there were two women in his program. Both were um, African. One was from Swaziland and one was from South Africa. And each of them had left children back at home for a couple of years to do a graduate Mm. program here in the US. And that was praised and valued. And to me, that is a really different example then we treat women who have jobs outside of the home, whether by choice or necessarily or both, and the burden that somehow they're not being good enough moms yeah. or moms who do choose to stay at home, the burden that somehow they're just, and I'm doing air quotes here, just stay at home moms. It's like, you can't win, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, this is a trap I have fallen into. I was looking at your website before uh, earlier today, just thinking about how to narrow down everything I wanted to talk to you about. Mm. And I was reading how you carried your kids in a rebozo around. I'm like, I didn't carry Athena in a rebozo enough. <laughs> and like, I didn't read Dr. Aviva's books. And I, and I just have to stop myself and be like, Christine, you are doing a great job. You don't have to be perfect. Like the perfectionism and the expectation um, that comes up as a mother is just, it's it's hard to escape. And I have met very few women that have been able to navigate that without, avoid it, you know, completely avoid it. Do you think that's just cultural? Do you think that's just an imprint? Do you think it's because we don't live in villages anymore? It's definitely cultural. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely cultural. I mean, I've spent time in a lot of different mother communities in different parts of the world in different parts of the country um, with different sociocultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds. It's, very much cultural. And of course, culture has like dominant culture has a way of seeping into a lot of different 
environments. But again, going back to different mothers I know who have left their children in other countries to get an education or women who just don't come from cultures where the expectation to sort of mollycoddle our kids and be there. And, you know, the expectations, especially if you're doing attachment parenting are really intense. Mm -hmm. Just kind of turn yourself inside out. One of the things that I've been really concerned about recently is um, since COVID, particularly the number of therapists who are showing up with parenting advice on Instagram, for example. And it's funny because I was really intentional about how I raised my kids, really tried to be aware of and like self-reflective about intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. And again, we homeschooled, we did family bed, we had our babies at home. I breastfed, I did the rebozo, like the whole attachment parenting thing. And we weren't particularly helicopter parents either. We were very much like we lived in the country, go play. Mm -hmm. But my kids are grownups now and they struggle with things too. It's Mm -hmm. not like you do those things and automatically your kids are given this like bubble of protection. And so I worry about these parents who are just trying so hard to raise their kids trauma-free and with all the like perfect everything that it's like doing something, expecting an outcome with children Mm -hmm. as they become adults, you miss a lot and you don't necessarily see who they are. And I really do feel like if they've been so protected from the world and then they're out in the real world and real things happen, how are we teaching resilience? I sometimes think Mm -hmm. if I could go back and re-raise my children, I'd focus more on resilience and um, really strong skills for coping with stress and the Mm -hmm. world Mm -hmm. and less about some of the other things that I was concerned about. Thank you. That just helped me because I so wanted to do, I'm still breastfeeding. I, and that was a struggle. We had a tongue tie. I want to ask you about that too. Um, Mm. and I so wanted to do total attachment parenting, the family bed. And by nine months, I just was like, she doesn't sleep well, not in her own space. She just, she just doesn't. And I put her in her room and blacked it out and tucked her in and did all this stuff with the sheets and like all this special stuff to tuck her in. Mm. And she just started, Athena's always been super independent since she was a newborn. And I so wanted her with me all the time, but she did better in her own space. I mean, not initially, this wasn't at nine months. And I would just cry because <laughs> I was like, I messed yeah. it up. I should have tried harder. She should be in my bed. And I've really had to, you know, look at my, you know, my um, hooks into that and go, you know, we made a decision that worked best and she's thriving and she's actually sleeping, you know, she's actually sleeping, which she yes, wasn't doing really when important. she was in my First bed. Of all, sometimes I, yeah. Sometimes I just want to say to some of the therapists online who have young kids, like, how about put a pin in that and like, come back and be a therapist when your kids are grown and right. then let us know what you right. actually think. I was talking to a mama recently. Um, she is, she brought her baby to my medical practice because he has really severe eczema 
And then he had food allergies and had an anaphylactic reaction and Mm. ended up in the ICU. And this is a mom who's been breastfeeding. And then she introduced the, you know, the perfect organic baby food. Mm -hmm. And it was that that seemed to lead to the anaphylactic reaction. And I got on the phone with her, Zoom with her for our first appointment. It was a telemedicine appointment. And I said, you know, over the decades now of being a mom, because my oldest is just turned turning 30 or just turned 38 last week. Sorry. (laughs) And, um, I have two grandbabies. I said, I've come to believe that parenting isn't really about raising kids to shape them, that Mm -hmm. we have an idea of how we want these adults to be. I think we need to live by our values and instill our values and communicate our values to our kids. But I think it's two things more importantly. One, what is the actual example that we're setting for them by how we live our lives? And two, how are we responding to who they are mm. and how what life throws us? And it's funny because this mom was blaming herself inside out for her baby's skin condition and allergies, but her husband, her husband's father and her husband's brother all have those same allergies. Mm. So it's like, you didn't have anything to do with this. You know, Mm -hmm. you just kind of brought this through and now your job is to not blame yourself, but to figure out what your baby needs and how to respond. Yep. Yep. So key because we, as mothers, will blame ourselves for so many things, so many things. And, you know, I, in, in my 20 years of coaching people and doing so much inner child work, the things that people remember are, did they feel loved? Did they feel safe? Whether they ate this food or breastfed till this age or had formula or slept in the bed or didn't, those aren't the things that come up for people. It's more, did I feel safe? Did I feel like I could emotionally express myself? Was my home chaotic or was there a consistency to it? Could I go out and take risks and know that if I fell, I had a safety net? You know, did I have structure in my house, but it wasn't too rigid? You know, those were more the things than, you know, at what age did you nurse to or, you know, and I think there's just so much pressure on moms at any stage. You know, I'm in the new stage but at Absolutely. Any, any stage, there's just so much pressure. But you know what? I mean, it's like, I remember when my kids were in their like tweens and teens and it was, I remember it was seven o'clock at night. A couple of the girls had had soccer and I was getting dinner on the table and one of my neighbors called to chat and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just now serving dinner. We're just all sitting down to eat together. And I was almost a little tiny bit apologetic. Maybe it was like 730 that the kids were just eating dinner. Mm-hmm. and she said, wait, you guys all eat together. And I mean, she's an amazing mom. Mm. She, um, really devoted to her kids. Her kids were wonderful, great kids. And she, it, she was, her life was a little more chaotic. And so that's the other thing too, is like, it often is chaotic if you have a baby and a toddler and you can't get the, the meals on the table at the same time every day. Or if you do have a partner and you're both working and trying to get kids off to school in the morning, it, like it can feel chaotic, but I do agree this piece around safety at home is really perhaps more important than anything else. Yes. Yes. And, and yeah, life chaos. Yes. I was more like addiction, emotional parents fighting, chaos. like, yeah. you know, things being thrown, not having emotional consistency. You know, those yeah. things are just, those are, those are, oof. and I, I want to come back to the the childhood thing. I have one, 
my, my last baby question, then we'll move on to hormones and all oh, kinds of other stuff. Yeah. I am shocked at how many babies are now born with tongue ties and lip ties that like yeah. wasn't an issue eight years ago. Um, or wasn't as it, it seems like everybody and the, it creates nursing issues. Do you have any sense or, or have you researched at all? Like what is causing this huge prevalence of tongue ties? Yeah, I think it's really complicated. I think it's, um, probably two things happening. One is that because we're much more aware of it and because many more people are breastfeeding, we're more likely to see it and diagnose it. It okay. takes more work to breast, to, it takes more work to get milk out of a human nipple than out of a bottle. So part of what I think is happening is the wonderful increase that we've seen in breastfeeding means that more babies are going to struggle because we're, we weren't catching it before. And that also, um, has raised awareness around tongue ties. So I, I do have concerns that sometimes that people are very quick to diagnose it when mm -hmm. there are other solutions that might be valid and relevant. The other thing is that, um, not to say we shouldn't treat it when it's there, it's problematic. It can cause breastfeeding problems. It can mm -hmm. cause a huge amount of distress for mom who's trying to feed her baby. It can cause growth problems. And then later on it can cause speech pathology. So it is really important to get a clear diagnosis that it, if that's what it is and it's very readily treatable. The other thing, and I don't think that the evidence yet bears this out. Um, and please know I am not in any way connecting autism to tongue tie. There is no relationship here, folks. What I'm saying is that we have seen an increase. Again, there was a massive increase in autism. Now we're seeing another massive increase in autism. There's been increases in allergies and asthma for kids. There's mm. been increases in younger ages of autoimmune conditions. And so something is happening physiologically which could be dietarily related, environmentally related. Mm -hmm. It's considered like a, a mild form of a, what's called a midline defect. So mm -hmm. what are these sort of invisible factors that are affecting our children? Kind of back to what I was saying earlier when you asked me what I'm passionate about and what, what makes me angry. It's that as parents, we're again bearing the burden of these downstream effects that are happening to our kids. Yeah. And you still have people, researchers throwing their hands in the air going, oh, but, you know, environmental exposures don't cause these things mm -hmm. in kids and we've got reams of data. So those are some of the different things yeah. um, that may be contributing. There's very limited data at this point connecting folic acid folate or methylfolate to tongue tie, but I do think it's an area that's worth yeah having research done. And it's definitely important not to overload on methylfolate when you're pregnant, but I do think it's important to get for, uh, to get 800 micrograms of methylfolate in your prenatal vitamin when you are pregnant. Yeah. And that's where I think I was probably over. I was so on my prenatal vitamins, but I also had a lot of folate in my diet. And I also don't think my B12 ratio was great with my folate. So Mm -hmm. all, all learning. But and, you know what? It can all be true, true and unrelated. Right. And it, it so doesn't true. necessarily, <laughs> so true. we never know. Right? And again, I do think, yeah, I do think that there are things that probably happened in our great grandmother's time when mm -hmm. people were all primarily breastfeeding that may have been more chalked up to normal, or maybe a midwife did a little snip, you know? Yeah. 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 That's what my mom said back in the day. They just a little snip and then that would, that was it. Um, exactly. yeah. And, and this is another thing we, we do our best to be healthy and there's just some environmental things that we can't 
you know, unless we go and live in the middle of nowhere, um, there's some environmental Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Even so there, even in the middle of nowhere, you're not protected. I mean, polar bears in the Arctic have BPA in their blood. Oh. So again, it's, you know, we have to, I think, approach life. The former um, president of the World Bank, who was part of um, the healthcare team with the late Paul Farmer in Boston, Jim Kim, said that uh, he considers optimism a moral obligation. Optimism mm-hmm. is a moral obligation. I love that. And I feel like what, you know, what we can do as mamas is really see the best in ourselves, see the best in our children, do the best we can with what we know, as Maya Angelou said, when we know better, we do better, but mm-hmm. we can't blame ourselves for what happened when we didn't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. And then do our best to create those emotionally, physically, environmentally safe spaces for our kids and then let it go a little bit because you can drive yourself crazy. Can I tell you a quick story? It's just that um, when my son, my oldest is my son, he's the one that just turned 38 and he was in medical school. Now this kid was born at home, home birth, I mean, uh, breastfed till he was four homeschooled, lived in the country. We ate organic. I made my own baby food when he started eating solids and I made my own bread, all the things. I mean, all the things, Christine. And when he was 20, he was in medical school and he fell down a flight of stairs and he developed a concussion, which led to almost complete loss of his eyesight. And Mm. I will say the happy news is that two years later, he subsequently regained all of it. But my first thought was when he fell down the stairs, it was twilight. He was carrying a bicycle and some groceries and went to answer a cell phone, like very millennial right? Mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. to do. And, um, he fell down the stairs and my first thought, my first thought was like, Oh, I should have been there holding mm-hmm. his hand. I mean, mm-hmm. how nuts is that? Right. Mm-hmm. As a mother. And then something really powerful happened for me, which was that it really transformed how I parented because I realized that you just can't protect your kids from all of life's inevitabilities. But if you spend so much time making the world a scary place because they can only eat this and only wear that and only go to this place that's, you know, toxin free and everything becomes so dangerous, we're really not teaching them resilience and we're not teaching them that the world is a safe place. And we're not letting them live their most kind of authentic, experimental, wild lives, which I think is important for them to be able to do to find out who they are and what they love. So true. Uh, One thing that I keep reminding myself is one of my jobs is to get out of her way. Like not Mm. just just let her be her. And Mm -hmm. again, in my 20 years of working with people, the the wound I see over and over again, wound or whatever we want to call it, is as children, people didn't feel safe to be themselves. They had to be mm-hmm. whatever version of themselves to be safe, to get validation, to please someone, to fit in. And so although, you know, in those moments where I start to feel like, oh my gosh, what is the world coming to? I also remember that consciousness is shifting and more people are aware and more people are breaking generational patterns. And, and that gives me, that gives me the optimism, like you said, of like, okay, 
consciousness is shifting. And I look at, especially the generation of kids that are coming in and, you know, I, I feel optimistic that with different, with parents that are a little more conscious and broke a lot of generational patterns before they had a child. One of the reasons I waited so long to have a child was because I wanted to be as clear as I could to pass on, Mm -hmm. you know, to not pass on some generational trauma from either side, my husband or I. And I feel like with, with some of that stuff out of their way, they will be the innovators and they will be Mm -hmm. the ones Mm -hmm. that change a lot of things here. This may be a difficult question to, to limit it to one thing. So it doesn't have to just be one, but before we shift gears into talking about hormones and your newest book for women that are wanting to get pregnant or are pregnant, what's one thing you wish all women knew about birth? Wow. One thing I wish all women knew about birth. It doesn't have to be one. Birth. It could be a couple. I think, I think one thing is to and I would say this is probably the same with parenting, with all of the things, just being a woman, is to spend time tapping into your own body awareness. Really go within. It's important to learn about birth, learn about birth in our culture, learn about the things that you do and you don't want. But that is very cerebral and can be emotional, can be fear-driven, all those things. But to really spend time getting comfortable in your body, using your body to me and listening to your body, you know, like you, you were saying with Athena, how she just wasn't sleeping. You weren't mm-hmm. sleeping with family bed and you listened inwardly, not just to um, like physical sensations, but to something that was saying to you, this isn't working mm-hmm. and trusting that, you know, at a deeper level, and it might not seem like it, but getting quiet enough to really know. And then I would say secondary to that, um, there's a lot that can happen in labor, in birth, particularly if you're birthing in a medical environment that can pull you away from your knowing and drive fear. So having another woman with you, particularly ideally someone who's given birth Mm -hmm. and who knows birth, who can remind you of what you have within yourself as resources. And I think that's really important with parenting too. It's easy to sort of look externally for advice and everything we are supposed to do and supposed to know, but sometimes diving back in to our own inner knowing is the most powerful tool we have. Yeah, it's so true. That inner knowing and the woman was the two things that enabled me to have a home birth. My best friend, Monica, we've been best friends for over 20 years. I was at, she's had three children and I was at two of her births and you know, her, her oldest is 20 and mine, you know, is 14 months. So it's been, we were at different points in our life and she was then at my birth Mm -hmm. and it got to a point in my labor where my water had broke 36 hours ago. I had, you know, was contracting and then my uterus just got really tired and I just stopped contracting. Mm -hmm. And my Mm -hmm. midwife said to me, well, it's been 36 hours, you know, cause midwives can still be very, you know, they have their laws and all that stuff. So anyway, it's yeah. a different conversation. But And um, they said, you're going to have to go to the hospital. And I said, no, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> and so we did my first cervical check and they're like, well, you're you're complete. Like you're fully effaced, but you're not having contractions. And I said, well, I'll just push her out. And they're like, you don't have contractions. And I said, well, mm-hmm. I'll just push her out. And my best friend looked at me and she's, she said, I know you can do this. You've got mm-hmm. this and I will be pushing mm-hmm. with you. 
And it makes me emotional now because she was the only person in that moment that could have, my husband was so supportive, but it was her, like seeing her birth and what she went through and her saying that to me gave me the confidence and the knowing that like I wasn't doing it alone and like mm-hmm. I could do it. Yeah. When you first asked me the question, my first thought to answer was actually to remember all the women who mm-hmm. have come mm-hmm. before you. Mm-hmm. And that can be fraught too, right? Because some people have less than happy intergenerational birth stories. But yeah. to think about all, all the women who have birthed is really a powerful, yeah. yeah, powerful thing. Yeah. You tap into something pretty fierce and um, natural and amazing. Yeah. It's, it's a, mm-hmm. I'm, I feel very blessed to have had the experience to birth a child. Very, very blessed. Mm. And it's done a number on my hormones, <laughs> yeah. especially having a baby in my forties. So let's, let's shift gears to speaking about hormones because it just seems like common, a common thing that women have thyroid. I've been on, um, armor thyroid since I was 30. Um, luckily mm-hmm. I don't have PCS, PCOS or endometriosis, but I can name 10 people off the top of my head that do. Fertility issues. It just seems like every woman almost has something and it's just like, oh, well, that's just being a woman, you know? Yeah. What has happened? Why are we so hormonally suffering? Yeah. I mean, it's the same same set of factors, right? I mean, we're so acutely, sensitively um, responsive to even small, tiny, infinitesimal amounts of endocrine disruptors, chemicals in our environment that bind to mimic and shift our hormones. Uh, So many women are not getting the nutrients that we need to support actual hormone production because a standard American diet is often very devoid of a lot of the nutrition we need. But even when we're trying our best and eating this really amazing whole foods diet, we're often eating on the run or we're, we're restricting for various reasons. And then stress has a huge toll on our hormonal health. When we think about stress, we think about the day-to-day kinds of like, I'm so stressed out, but there's also stress and what are actually considered environmental toxins like constant exposure to noise, constant exposure to bright light. So when you put all of that together, it becomes the perfect storm and it can be any one of those things or for most women, a whole set of those things that conspire. And I didn't even include genetics in there. Mm. So, you know, there's the genetic piece and then there's what's called epigenetics. So the areas that are flanking our actual genes that sort of act like switches to turn genetic predispositions on or off. So some of these we can override with diet so just or lifestyle. So just because your mother or grandmother or grandfather or father had diabetes doesn't mean you will have diabetes, but you may be more predisposed to it. And then if you follow the same diet and lifestyle because you were raised on that, et cetera, et cetera, then ultimately, you know, it kind of pushes you down a certain pathway. And a lot of the exposures that we've had, we've had before we were even born. So it's complicated. And I think the most important takeaway for me about all of that is first to remember there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken and it's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong to have PCOS or endometriosis or fertility problems or a thyroid problem. 
And often there are many things that we can do about it, even if they're not always 100% curative, right? It might be that somebody has Hashimoto's and they still have Hashimoto's even after they've changed their diet and their lifestyle Mm. and they're on the right medication and they're really, really supported in their health and, and their thyroid function is optimized because of the thyroid medication. So the, the functions that their thyroid is supposed to do are happening. But we also have to keep in mind that health doesn't sort of stop at 30 or 40, right? You, you're laying down the tracks the whole time. So even if you have to use a medication to get your thyroid under control and optimized, or even if you have to go through IVF, let's say, to get pregnant, um, it, it's still important to do all these things for our health because the things that are happening in our twenties affect our health in our thirties and our thirties affect our health in our forties. So it's really important to start wherever you are, but again, not to, uh, blame yourself or kind of like parenting, turn yourself inside out, just do the very best you can with the best information that you have. And, you know, kind of, we kind of all have to, in a way, do our best to avoid the pitfalls of kind of modern living, right? Mm. The staying on Netflix till midnight, the, and then getting up at six in the morning, the checking our cell phones right before bed, because we're getting exposed to that blue light that affects our stress and our cortisol, or, you know, doing our best to avoiding, um, the contaminants that come in our food in the form of herbicides and pesticides, or eating out of reheating or storing food in plastic containers or drinking out of plastic water bottles, Mm -hmm. like all those low hanging fruit things that we can do by all means. Great. Yes. Let's do those. Mm. One of the things that um, I think can get overwhelming for women that are dealing with hormonal issues or any kind of you know, reproductive gynecological issues is that they don't know where to start because they, they may go to their yeah. doctor and say, well, this is just this and you need to have this procedure or take this pill or wherever. So Maybe you could go through some of the the two or three of the top gynecological issues that you see or, or hormone-based issues that you see and like where a good place to start would be. So, cause I see so many women, they just don't know what to do. So they just, they don't, they don't do anything. Yeah. I mean, I would say whether it's PCOS or PMS or endometriosis or a thyroid problem or depression, anxiety, kind of anything that can be hormonally related or any of the common day-to-day headaches, migraines. The place that I really like to start with is, I would say two things, taking out as much of the sort of artificial foods as you can, particularly sugar is a really big one. Mm -hmm. And as part and parcel of that, really kind of the meta of what I'm saying is balancing your blood sugar, which is really, that is the key thing. Because when your blood sugar is erratic, if you're having big peaks in your blood sugar because you were tired or hangry or hungry or just stressed out. And I read this quote the other day, it says, there are two sweet things in life, love and treats. And if you don't have enough of the first, you're going to want more of the second. Oh, wow. It's kind of funny. Yeah. But I was like, just really taking that in all the factors that drive us to kind of go for those carbs, go for the sugars. And then what happens is you get this sugar peak, this blood sugar peak, and then you get that drop. And that blood sugar peak can cause anxiety, stress, agitation, but that drop can cause all those things and more. And when you're chronically 
going up and down, up and down on your blood sugar because you're skipping meals, you're drinking more coffee than you are eating food, um, you're drinking more alcohol at night, and then your blood sugar is kind of not so great overnight and it's disrupting your sleep, all the things. That fundamentally can cause so many symptoms. It mm. also can lead to chronic inflammation. So truly, truly, for the most part, if you want to relieve pain, if you want to relieve mood swings, if you want to help restore a semblance of ease or what we might call hormone balance, blood sugar, first thing. Mm. The next thing I think is probably um, really working on our stress self-regulation. And that is really hard. And I mean, we live in a culture where, I mean, right now, at the time that you and I are having this conversation, I mean, the federal government is talking about whether it can afford to basically stay open. You know, there's been how many horrible, violent incidences already, and we're not even halfway into the year. Like there's all these external stresses that also make us feel so anxious and so worried. And so, and then there's our own day-to-day stuff, our relationships, what's going on with our kids, whether our baby is sleeping through the night or has eczema or food allergies, like all the things. So we can't really change what's happening in all of those things on the outside. And even while we're changing the things that we can in our own immediate sphere, how we react to those is so important. So mm. when we're chronically hypervigilant, when we're chronically stressed, that can really play a number on our hormones. And kind of fundamentally what's happening is at a biological level, your body creates cortisol and cortisol can interfere with ovulation. It's almost as if your brain and your body are saying, hey, she's too stressed to really even function in her own life, right? Now, or the world is just not a safe place let's put a kibosh on fertility for a minute so that it doesn't add more to her load and her burden and her plate. So that is a really big piece that I think is so important for us. And, and for me, it's a work in progress. And me too. You, know, you mentioned earlier, yeah, I mean, I'm very much, I grew up in, as I you know, may have mentioned in a housing project, and I did mention in a housing project with a single mom in the 1970s. And our economic stressors were real. I've, I've stood in house in subsidized housing lines. I've stood in welfare lines, um, with my mom. And so for me, perfectionism became high achieving, right? High achieving became a means to get out of that environment and create safety. But sometimes these things that we adapt as kids, whether it was, you had to be the funny one in the family to, break up the tension and the depression for the other kids because your mom and dad were just checked out with mood disorders or whether you had to be the peacemaker to prevent, you know, dad from hitting mom and dad was an alcoholic or, you know, any of these kinds of things that we adapt, we don't even realize sometimes that they become kind of our personality and the way life drives us. So particularly for those of us who are high functioning with yeah. anxiety or perfectionism, that can make us take on way too much, overdrive yeah. ourselves, jack up our cortisol. Mm -hmm. you're, you're hearing me, I know. Yeah, and um, that can have a huge impact on our our hormones too. I, I'm I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because this is something we talk about so much on this show, 
the survival strategies that we adopt as children and how yeah. our survival. I call them adapt, like they're adaptive, yeah. they right? They are. They, they, but they the are. shadow side, yeah, the shadow side is often like, I feel like our superpower and our shadow side are often two sides of the same, yep. different sides of the same coin. Yep. And the superpower tends to show up when things are good, when we're feeling good and we are like living in flow. But then that shadow side of it, when things are stressful is what tends to show up. It's like that ache in someone's knee when the weather gets cloudy. It's the behavioral thing that happens when life gets cloudy. Yeah. I I always thought I was naturally just a high achiever. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't until I really got into personal development in my 20s that I realized, oh my gosh, this achiever part of me is compensating for where I feel so insecure. I feel so unlovable, Mm -hmm. so unlikable that I believe that I have to succeed. Otherwise I'm worth nothing. And the part that was tricky is it was very useful. It got me very far in life and was very acknowledged by others. But I always yes, felt these are highly, highly, highly validated, yep, highly, highly praised. Validated, where it's like it's if function. you can be addicted to achieving, great. Addicted to porn, addicted to alcohol, you have a problem. And so it's, but it's the same. Like it's an addiction to something that is helping you avoid something else oftentimes. And that's been well, something. Well, and it's almost like a culturally required one, right? right? Because let's face it. I mean, if you don't say I'm going to work those extra hours and weekends, somebody else is going to say it right. and they are going to get that promotion or they are going to get that job. Or if you don't, you know, show up at your job during the day, get the kids, get dinner on the table, help them with their homework, and then go back to finishing what you didn't do during the day it's very hard because our culture is, is literally set up to reward overachievement and it breeds anxiety. And we do live in times where it, I mean, I'm looking at young people, especially like my younger age kids. I mean, just the cost of getting an apartment now or finding one, let alone buying a house is so high that it does drive us to feel like we have to keep making more and making more and making more money to feel secure. So there's so it's like I feel like it's so important for us to be very tender and compassionate and gentle with ourselves because it's it's really important that we unwind from these traits and behaviors and not let them drive our lives. And I talk about the difference between having drive and feeling driven by something external or internal that doesn't feel good. Um, but the reality is, is that it's not like you can just sort of shut off doing all those things. It's not like I can just stop working tomorrow and say, Oh, I don't want to do this. And I don't want to do this. And I don't want to do this because I still have to pay bills. Right. Yeah. It's been a lifetime. Well, not lifetime, but the past 20 years that I've been aware of it. So my adult life for me, it's been something to to consistently just be mindful of and check in of yeah. what's my come from? Am I doing this from fear of like, I need to prove or I'm not enough or, you know, I'm going to miss out on something or am I doing this because it actually is a need or it's actually something that I want to do. And Mm-hmm. The greater the ambition, the greater the perfectionist, and the greater of level of self expect yeah. expectation, and the louder the inner critic is. Most high achievers have Absolutely. the nastiest inner critic, and so oh, mine's terrible. Oh. I was criticizing my husband one day about something because it was just like, wait, like 
that was a big thing to drop and miss. And he was really taken back. And I was like, wow, if you think that was bad, you should be in my own head. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. I'm yeah. still working on it too. Yeah. I've, I've given her a name. Her name is Candy and that's what I call her. And I, I, I have learned that judging her and criticizing her doesn't get me anywhere. So I've loved her. I embrace her. I know she's there yes. because she's serving the part of like pushing me hard so I don't get hurt. Like that's what she's there for. Yes. And so I know her highest Well, also intention. sometimes those inner critics, sometimes those inner critics aren't even our own voice. I worked with a wonderful EMDR therapist some years ago and she taught me this concept of the interoject. So just to give you an example, um, I've been married for 38 years and whenever my husband and I have any kind of like, not like a tiny little tension, but a bigger tension, my first emotional reaction is we should just get divorced. Like that is literally my first reaction. And my parents divorced when I was four. So I spent a long time, you know, internalizing that that is the way to resolve a conflict. Not that people shouldn't get divorced. My parents was not amicable, let's just say. So for me, that was sort of, it's the almost like a programmed reaction. For some people, they may uh, eat something and they hear some voice fat shaming them because somebody did that when they were a kid, or maybe somebody was saying something about themselves that like my mom, um, had me really, really young. She wasn't able to complete college at that time. And so her kind of shadow legacy for me was that she never achieved enough. And so for me, like, it's no matter how much I do, I still hear this voice saying it's not achieving enough, mm. but it's not really me saying that about myself. It was me internalizing my mom saying that about herself. Make sense? Oh yeah. Yes. So much something that I say to myself and my clients all the time is whose voice is that? I'm like whose exactly. voice? Which part of you or who else is that? Is that your dad? Is that your mom? Is that the teacher? Is that the girl that teased you in eighth grade? Like who's yeah. that voice? And are you going to continue to give them so much power and authority over your life? You know, really getting clear on who, who's, who's got, who's running the, the show inside our own head. And we're so, and just being in the world of humans for so long, we're so simple and we're so complex and we're the, so the same yeah. and we're so different. <laughs> it's, it's just, yeah. I, I love the human journey and it's, it's hard and it's frustrating and it is at times it, it really is a beautiful journey. And I wanted to ask you too, you know, and, and another thing that I've seen over my career is that so many unresolved emotional issues, whether it be a huge trauma like sexual abuse or, you know, something, because there's trauma of all different forms. And mm -hmm. it could be just the, the trauma of moving a lot, not something that someone would say, oh, that was so awful, but it might've been really hard on you as a kid. Yeah. It often does connect to health problems down the line. Mm -hmm. And I see with a lot of women, abuse, feeling unsafe, feeling unexpressed, feeling abandoned, rejected, often do translate to reproductive issues of some kind. And I'm just wondering mm -hmm. if you have seen that in your career over the years. Oh yeah. There's a known correlation between trauma and childhood trauma, teenage trauma, but also even adult domestic violence and, um, all kinds of health 
problems, some of them more generalized from uh, IBS, but even things like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis to IBS being irritable bowel syndrome for folks who don't know what that is, to migraines, to autoimmune conditions, to increased risk of heart disease, um, to increased risk of experiencing reproductive health problems. I was actually shocked. I was teaching a class during COVID online um, to the medical students at my alma mater, which is Yale. And I was teaching in the um, domestic violence, uh, intimate partner violence course that they have. And just doing the updated research on how many medical, not just psycho-emotional, but physical medical conditions I mean, think about that, right? Autoimmune conditions, heart attack, stroke, migraines. Those are big things that are tied back to, to, uh, to trauma. And there's so much we can do to heal. I think there's also so much we have to do to give ourselves acceptance and compassion because sometimes those things set a ball rolling. And now as an adult, you do have to live with that because you've had the problem for so long. And then beautifully, some things can be reversed and remitted with really great, um, really great trauma therapy. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, trauma is really complicated because when we look at, for example, um, my husband was asking me, we were listening to, or he had heard something about increased risk of Oh, he heard me talking about increased risk of uterine fibroids and breast cancer. Oh, I know what it was. Let me back up and say this. He had heard about um, on NPR a story about how part of the motivation for decreasing the age of breast cancer screening as the recommendations just came forth to do so at 40, mm. starting at 40, um, was partly to catch the risk of breast cancer in black women that's increased earlier. Mm. And he was asking me, why is it that there's so much more risk of health conditions like that for black women, you know, in my perspective. And I was saying, well, there's so much that is internalized just from the experience of racism as a black woman or a brown woman. There's so much internalized in the experience of sexism as a woman in general and the fears that we sort of live with and, you know, whether it's walking in a parking garage or going into your apartment at night, right? All the things going into your car that we don't realize are actually environmental toxins that mm. we internalize. And these are all forms of trauma. And so we do our best to raise our kids especially if we're in very high risk, you know, groups for trauma, black women, for example, or people who are othered in our culture in any way and face risks of various kinds of abuse and resulting trauma. People who have been bullied, have higher risks of bullied as children, have higher risks of adult health problems. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, how do we, again, teach our kids resilience, but then also how do we change our society so that it's less traumatizing. And I think that is a really important piece of it as we do our own healing. Yeah. I, when people ask me, you know, what do we do about all the injustice and inequality and environmental toxins? And I definitely don't have the answer. 
Mm-hmm. What I do know that I personally have some gifts and experience and contribution to make is helping people deal with their childhood and their trauma and mm-hmm. their inner critics and all of that. And so my answer is often find what your where your natural gifts and your life experience meet. And wherever that is, yeah. is how you can personally contribute. Um, and- well, and I think building resilience is a oh, really yeah. important thing because I think that when we, we, we as a culture, and I think we in a certain generation in our culture right now, and with certain privileges in our culture right now have become very focused on trauma. And, you know, what, when we're always looking for trauma, we're also going to find it. And so how do we equally remember that the stress response system is a system that is uniquely present to provide us with resilience. And so how can we learn from and grow with and grow from, and I'm not one of these people who's like into like growth trauma as like, this is somehow putting a, a, a halo around it. I don't, encourage us to have trauma so that we can grow from it or think that everyone who has trauma should grow from it. Mm -hmm. But if you have it, then we can constantly be focused on how badly it's impacted us and forget to look at how resilient we are as organisms. And we really are. We're incredibly resilient and we can use, we can remember to be mindful of the shadow side of our trauma so that we're aware of it when it shows up. So we're not causing ourselves suffering or by extension, causing anyone around us suffering by living out that trauma, but then say to us, okay, well, what is the superpower of this? Like, what can I, how can I use this if, to help my life or to help myself feel better or to not be stuck in the, in the B side of the record, but to mm. flip it over to the A side of the record. Mm, mm, I, I agree. Um, <clears throat> shifting gears back to the hormones for a moment. I know I have a lot of women of various ages mm-hmm. listening and especially a lot of women in that perimenopausal range where can mm-hmm. st- can still be cycling and and may not know that they're actually in that that phase what are some signs of that perimenopausal stage even if we are cycling regularly and what are some mm-hmm. things we can do to help us in that stage of life and into menopause because it seems like menopause is just this another like Oh, it just happens and you deal with it. And maybe you take some bioidentical hormones and that's kind yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah. And no, there's I mean, no there's reverence for it either. We can do. I think that getting really good at paying attention to how you're feeling, kind of what we were talking about with back to Athena sleeping in bed with you or versus having her own or back to being in labor, getting really good at paying attention to how you're feeling and how different things affect how you feel. So, I mean, for me, like I've been able to comfortably eat dairy my whole life. I've been able to comfortably eat gluten my whole life. Hit menopause and it was like, "Ah," like, guess again, babe, Mm -hmm. just by my metabolism shifted a little bit, my digestion shifted a little bit. So I had to rethink all the things that not all, but just pay more attention. I've never been a big drinker at all. I'm actually, believe it or not, I had my first mixed drink when I was like 39, but I've just never been a drinker. And yet, you know, over the ensuing years, I'm 56 now, learn to enjoy a glass of wine here and there, or, you know, vodka and sparkling water with a splash of grapefruit juice. 
girl, I cannot drink now. I mean, Mm. I cannot, I just, I was out with someone recently and I was like, I'm just going to have a half a glass of wine. It was a half a glass of wine, white wine. And I was up in the middle of the night and it was just like one Mm. of those, okay, pay attention to how you're feeling because you don't want to repeat this. Sleep and alcohol are probably two of the biggest things that either make or break. And alcohol can really break sleep when we're in perimenopause and menopause. So I highly encourage us to find other ways to create relaxation if that is affecting your sleep. And if sleep sucks, everything sucks. So I know really I just went through that get, the past yeah. year. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm a midwife and a doctor. I've spent decades of my life missing sleep, you know, and I just don't love it and experience it the same way I did when I was in my twenties, thirties, and even in my forties. So just learning to pay attention to your new normal. And then if you do have symptoms, I mean, hormones can be fine, but there are a lot of other things that we can do along the way. And sometimes it's just spending more time getting out in nature and taking a good long walk that can really help sleep. Um, Again, skipping the alcohol, not watching a a television show uh, or being on your computer until the 11th hour, literally or figuratively, so that you're getting some wind down time. Uh, Learning to eat in a way that supports you as your hormones change. So it may be that you need more protein and less carbs. It may be that you need more carbs and less of something else. It's just really learning to listen and not be afraid to try different things to adjust, but also being really careful not to fall into fads because mm-hmm. there's no limit to the number of those that are thrown at people and menopause is becoming a cash cow, mm. which is good. I mean, it's good that there's so much attention on it, but it, we also run the risk of being sold a bill of goods. Yeah. Yeah. And that not the thing that works for one person may not work for another person. And I love what you said because it's, deepening into that innate intelligence and that feminine wisdom that we all have of what does my body need. I remember a while ago I did intermittent fasting in my thirties and I was like, this doesn't work for me. This doesn't work for my hormones. It doesn't Mm -hmm. work for my cycle. I've always been a little hypoglycemic. I lost some weight, but I felt awful. I felt just awful. I was like, how do people feel so clear? Like I'm just hungry. And then once 12 o'clock would hit or whatever the hour was, I could, I could, I was insatiable. I was just like, this isn't working. And so I've really learned for me, frequent meals throughout the day is what, what works for me. So that listening to the body, listening to our own inner wisdom. And I also think listening to whether a practitioner is right for us too, you know, whoever we're trusting with our health. And it's, it's a little like dating. You might have to try a couple people until you find someone that you feel really hears you and really knows your body. Um, I want to just, one of the things that was really most valuable for me when I started going into perimenopause and it wasn't obvious to me until I was in my like very early fifties, but I have uh, a girlfriend. She's been my friend since we were both 12 and she's three months older than I am. And she said, Hey, you know, my cycles have been really irregular for the past six months. And I said, that's funny. Mine have been really irregular too. And we were kind of just comparing notes and it was really nice. I mean, she had experiences I didn't, I had experiences she didn't, but we weren't in lockstep, but just to be with another woman mm. and particularly when I'd known for so long, but just to be around and with another woman and have the conversations of, Hey, what's going on for you? It's very normalizing. You realize yeah. you're not alone and you realize like we're all going through it to yeah. some degree or another. Yeah, no, it's so helpful to have these conversations. 
Um, Mm -hmm. Before we start to wrap up, I do want to just circle back to cortisol for a moment. Yeah. The mindfulness practices, the no screen time, the not alcohol, all of that is super um, important. Sleep is huge. That's been a huge thing for me because after the sleep deprivation with my baby, my body just was used to waking up. So it's just like, it's been so hard for me. And I've done all the things and I'm a little limited because I'm still breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that I have found helpful personally is CBD. That, mm-hmm. That's been helpful. But is there anything herbally? I know ashwagandha is often recommended. Um, if everybody's do, if someone's doing all the things, they're meditating, they're regulating their nervous system, but like they just, they're still waking up between that three to 5 a.m. time. Cause I've talked to a lot of people where this is happening. Is there anything else we can yeah. do on the physical level that helps with cortisol? Yeah. So one of the things that's a little kind of almost counterintuitive um, is to actually let yourself be awake. Mm -hmm. And you know, that feeling of like you're awake at three in the morning and not only you're awake and you're stressed about going back to sleep, but then you're also stressed and anticipating how tired you're going to be the next day. Oh yeah. Right. And so that makes it worse. So there's so many herbal things. There's passion flower. I I think CBD is great. There's lemon balm, there's chamomile, there's, you know, tons of herbs, there's magnesium, there's melatonin, there's lots of things that can also be done while you're breastfeeding. But one of the funny little tricks is to actually just have either a small nightlight that you can put on and, and read by like a little book, like a little book um, clip on lamp. Mm-hmm. If you have a Kindle or an iPad and you can set it to dark mode and read on that, they're just reading something really relaxing or listening to some music that's really relaxing or getting up in bed, just sitting up for a few minutes. I think what happens at that time of night, I call it the wee hours. It's like we get the wee hour worries, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's like those ex- existential things that you really start to, to worry about in the middle of the night. And so just sitting up in bed, again, a little clip on lamp, or you know, if you need to put on your iPhone for a light so you don't wake your partner, or if you have a very dim sconce, anything that works for you, and just journal out what is on your mind when you wake up at three in the morning. I started doing this and sometimes I forget if I do wake up, I don't wake up most nights, but if I ever do, like if I had that white wine, um, it's really interesting because in Buddhist meditation, like in monasteries, people say that that is one of the richest times for the mind to kind of be in deepest connection to spirit and meditation and intuition and creativity And it's a really powerful time to write out what's worrying you Mm. and to try to write the answers to what's worrying you. Like just let yourself free flow, no judgment of writing. It can be bullet points. It can be words. It can be anything, but there can be interesting answers that you find. But even just the practice of writing down the bones of it has been shown to reduce cortisol, Mm. reduce trauma reduce stress and worry. So I'm a big fan. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that too. I got myself a, one of those clip on lights and they make them in the amber color. So it's not the white light. Mm, nice. And I teach something called release writing where you just like, you can't even read it because you're writing as fast as your mind is <laughs> yeah. thinking. And then you just, you burn it or tear it up. And yep. it's really, really helpful. Um, so I would, I did that. And I also just would just read. I started reading Bono's autobiography because I was like, I need to read nothing about mothering. I need to read nothing about health. I need to read nothing about, yes. you know, career Having stuff. a novel yes. or something that yes. is just 
not triggering in any way. Anyway. Like if I read any kind of business thing in the middle of the night that I'm going to be like, oh, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. Like, right. no. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you have lots of books. People can go to your website. I'll link that all in the show notes. But your latest one is Hormone Intelligence. Tell people what they can mm-hmm. get from this book. Well, one, you can learn all about the factors that are not your fault that can be affecting your hormones from environmental triggers to gut health to stress, all the things in much more deep dive than we've talked about. There's a whole section on learning to listen to your inner wisdom and also how to work with healthcare providers to get what you need. You will get a whole section of questionnaires to help you figure out what's going on with your hormones, but also help you identify whether you have any of the sort of bigger gynecologic things going on, some of which we've talked about, like thyroid, PCOS, endometriosis. And then there is a six-step protocol for healing through diet, gut, um, energy, metabolism, and more, stress, sleep. And then there's a whole section of clinical protocols. So all the herbs, the dietary, the nutritional supplements, very targeted for a host of different, of all the common conditions that we, and symptoms we go through in our reproductive years. And then there are recipes. I have, I'm an avid cook. And so I translated those into recipes that also correspond with done for you meal plans. Cause the hardest thing isn't so much doing the food prep. It's sometimes figuring out what to prepare. So I tried to take that burden off mm. of busy women and busy mamas. I love it. It's such a comprehensive book and it's written with so much intellect, insight, and love. So thank you so much for the work you you do. Um, Everybody, everything will be linked in the show notes. Thank you for who you are in the world, the mother, the midwife, the doctor, the advocate, the educator, all the things, all the many, many hats that you wear. And thank you for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for having me and thank you for listening, everyone.